Now we come here, actually, to the first bridge that you have to cross over in revival. And this is important. It's all important. Listen to this now. Chapter 15, verse 1. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Odin. He went out to meet Asa, said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord's with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Now may I interject this because I think it's important. The tragedy of the hour is that there is not teaching in the church today. I say this very kindly. We don't need more preachers. You can buy them like bananas by the dozen. But my friend, teachers are few and far between. And that is the thing that is needed. That's what they needed in that day. They did not have a teaching priest. Oh, they had priests, Levites. They were knee-deep in those. But they did not have a teaching priest. And therefore, they were without the law, the Word of God. And when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. Now, it's just that simple, and yet it's just that complicated. My friend, if you mean business with God, he'll mean business with you. When I hear people say, oh, I try to study, I try to pray, I try to do this, and I don't get anywhere. My friend, who are you kidding? <laughs> May I say to you, when you say that, you're making God a liar. And I have news for you. God's no liar. God says, if you seek me, I'm there. <laughs> if you mean business with God, oh, search your heart, my friend, today. Do you really want to know God's Word? And God's ready to meet you anytime you are ready. Now, will you notice this? When they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he is found of them. And in those times... There was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Be ye strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. In other words, this man Asa was beginning to turn to God. Now, this prophet encourages him in this to turn to God and explains why they'd had the trouble that they had had, my beloved. They'd had a lot of trouble, a lot of problems. I wonder this. Now, I'm not speaking ex cathedra. I have no inside information. But studying the Word of God here, seeing how God dealt with these people, I'm wondering if one of the reasons today, with all of the smart boys that we have in Washington, and we have discovered that we've had some stupid decisions made. How can such smart boys make such stupid decisions in Washington? Why is it that we can't have law and order? Why is it today we can't really have peace? Why is it that there's lawlessness today? 
You know why? Let me just venture my opinion. And I base it, well, I base it on the Word of God in this particular passage right here. Because God has been left out. And he's not around Washington today. They don't need him there. Because they've got the smart boy. My friend, in this hour in which we're living, our nation needs God. And that was the problem back here. Now, verse 8. When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Odin, the prophet, he took courage, put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he'd taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. And he gathered themselves together in Jerusalem in the third month in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered unto the Lord the same time the spoil that they had. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. Now they're turning to God. They're turning to the Word of God. The first bridge that you've got to cross, and there's no way to get over it. They're not running a ferry over this river. You have to cross on God's bridge, and that is a knowledge of the Word of God. This is what characterized all five periods of revival. That was a return to the Word of God. I'm bold enough to state dogmatically that there has never been a revival without a return to the Word of God. There's no detour around the Word of God. There's no substitute for the Word of God. The great spiritual movement in the days of Wesley, my friend, was built around the Word of God. Why, Wesley read the Bible in three languages every morning. Dwight L. Moody, the great revival under him, he began the Bible Institute movement, one of the greatest movements for the study of the Word. And that movement's dying out today. Why? There's a getting away from the Word of God. And it means more than just a superficial familiarity with the Word of God. It's not an artificial vocabulary that a lot of the fundamentalists have today. It's not activity. It's not service. It's not method. It means a real knowledge and love of the Word of God. That is something we've got to have. I'm of the opinion that these movements today, God apparently seems to be using some of them. Some of the evangelists, God's using, no question about it. But my friend, I'm disturbed because not a movement or not an evangelist is making the Word of God, and I mean now the study of the Word of God, all important today. I find it very difficult to get these movements and to even get some of our schools interested in studying the Word of God like we're tempting to do on this program. Oh, they like to take a little text and read a little familiar passage and have a few little devotions. But my friend, to go through the Bible, to study the Bible, to make it primary today, where are they? If you know where they are, let me know. I feel very much alone. A friend of mine says, you're developing an Elijah complex. I guess I am. But I do feel very much alone in these days. 
my friend, you can't have a real revival unless it's based on the Word of God and people come to know the Word of God. That's the reason we try and teach it here. We hope revival's going to come. We believe this is the route. We'll have to cross over this bridge. Now, we mentioned that this man, Asa, and I'll begin reading now at verse 13 of chapter 15. And if you have your Bible, we'll follow that. That whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. They swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets and with cornets. May I say that this was making it, I think, very harsh, but yet there was a ready response to it and a response from the heart, by the way. And this man, Asa, brought about many reforms at that time. Now, in verse 14, they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them. And the Lord gave them rest round about. And our whole thought last time was that if you seek the Lord, why, it means that he'll be found of you. Now we come to something here that is quite interesting. We've been talking about there are certain bridges to revival, The first bridge is there must be a knowledge of the Word of God. There must be that emphasis upon the Word of God. That is all important. We come here to a second bridge, and that is scriptural separation. That word separation is one of the most abused, not only words, but teachings that we have. Now listen to him here in verse 16. And also concerning Maacah, the mother of Asa, the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove, and Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burned it at the brook Kidron. Now, this is indeed interesting. His own mother was engaged in idolatry. Now, I want you to notice something that's very important. She wasn't a friend of people who were engaged in idolatry. She was engaged in idolatry. That's the reason that he put her aside. Now, if she had had friends and she had been with them and they were idolatrous, that would have been no basis to set her aside. I get a little weary today of these people that because you happen to have been in a meeting years ago with someone whose methods you probably do not approve, but he's preaching the Word of God and God's blessing him, why they feel like that you're not separated. My friend, may I say that today? That's not scriptural separation at all. But I want you to notice the stand of Asa. Now, every successful politician, he lets it be known. That is, he lets all the voters know that he's for mother love. And I tell you, you won't get in any controversy if you raise the question of mother love. The last person a man will turn against is his mother. And mother love is unanimously recognized today. It's approved and applauded. And a man who turns against his mother, no matter who she is or what she's done, 
He's some sort of a villain. Well, Asa removed his mother. And I'm sure that some of the fundamentalists applauded him for that. But will you notice here that although he put his mother out for engaging in idolatry, removed her from the throne, the place of influence, something else. But the high places were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect all his days. Now, Asa himself, you see, was separated unto God, but he permitted these high places. Now, he could have removed them, but he did not. This idea today that we're to straighten out the world and every individual and make them conform to our pattern and come through our little wicked gate is, I think, not separation at all. I think it is the narrowest form of bigotry that we have today, and it's actually not separation. I feel like some folk today ought to get separated from themselves, and that would really be separation. If you want a revival, the place to begin is not by criticizing the other fellow, especially somebody God's using, The thing to do if you want revival is not to look at the other fellows, for you to get in a room by yourself and draw a circle right around you, get in the middle of the room. Then you get right in the middle of that circle and you say, Lord, begin a revival and let it begin inside this circle. And friends, as far as you and I are concerned, that is where Revival will have to start. Now, will you notice, and we move on down into this 16th chapter here, we find in the 6th and 30th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha king of Israel came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa king of Judah. In other words, Baasha wanted to keep his people in his own kingdom up there and didn't want them to go down into Israel, that is, into Judah, where there was a revival going on. Now we are told, verse 2, Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and thee, as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Go break thy league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. And Ben-Hadad hearkened unto king Asa, sent the captains of his armies against the city of Israel. And so the thing that happened was this. Verse 6, Then Asa the king took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramon, the timber thereof, wherewith Baasha was building, and he built therewith Geba and Mizpah. Here is this man now, that when Israel became a very formidable enemy, why, he turned to a former ally that they had had, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. And what did that indicate? Well, God sent a prophet to Asa to rebuke him. Verse 7, now chapter 16 of Second Chronicles. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, 
Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubans a huge host, very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Now God judges Asa for what? For lack of faith and the third bridge I think we have to cross to revival is faith, faith in God, not faith in methods, not faith in a man, not faith in a church, not faith in a system, not faith in an organization, but faith in God. Now, notice this. There was civil war between Beasha, king of Israel, and he came up against Asa. Now, Asa turned to Ben-Hadad of Syria, the ancient enemy. And this man, as Hanani reminded him, he says, you have evidence from God that God will deliver you. And he reminds him of the two instances in the past when the Ethiopians and the Lubims came up against him. God delivered them into his hand. Now, this man, at this moment, there's a lack of faith. You see, it's not only one act of faith that saves us. That's important. That's what justification by faith is. The moment that you put your trust in Christ, you're saved. But my friend, we're to live by faith. Paul, you remember, says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And then he uses one of the strangest expressions That, frankly, that is imaginable. He says, For therein is a righteousness of God revealed out of faith to faith, or from faith to faith. Now, what does he mean by from faith to faith? He means you're saved by faith and you're to live by faith. And I think very candidly, the eyes of the Lord, he says here, running to and fro in the earth. God's looking for a man today who will believe him, or a woman who will believe him. By the way, would you like to be that person who will believe God? Not become a fanatic, but on good, solid testimony, believe God. Well, you couldn't even come to him and please him without faith, because without faith it is impossible to please him. And we today have a great company of witnesses. We're compassed about, the writer to the Hebrews says in 12.1, by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, because of that, let us run with patience the race that is set before, laying aside the sin. What sin is it? Unbelief. Let's not only be saved by faith, friends, let's live by it. You know, many of us live like agnostics, and yet we're, I think, saved folk. Will you notice this? Verse 10, Then Asa was wroth with the seer, put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing, and Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now, this is amazing. This man would not accept that rebuke. Why? 
He didn't believe it. He didn't believe God either. And he had no real faith and dependence on God. Living without God means actually spiritual death for us. Be no way in the world for us to be used of God. Now, will you notice, God struck him with a disease. And you will notice in verse 12, And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. Now, I want you to notice that. Now, his disease became serious. His case was critical. And there's nothing wrong in going to the doctor. That's not the point. The writer here says he didn't turn to God in all of this. And I think it's just as important for a believer to go to God when you get sick as it is to call the doctor. I not only believe that, I think I'm a walking proof of that today. It's wrong in not going to God. It wasn't that there's something wrong in going to the doctor. There was something wrong in not going to God. He didn't turn to God at this time. May I say, when it was discovered that I had cancer, I went to the, I think he's the finest cancer specialist in Southern California, in our entire area. And I love the man. He's certainly done wonders for me. But he himself said it was God healed me. He's a Christian. He very candidly says that. And it's a remarkable case. Now, I'm not completely healed. I still have it. It's a misnomer to say I've been healed. But the spots have disappeared. But the point I want to make is that immediately when it was discovered I had it, I not only went to the doctor, I went to God in prayer, I tell you. And I not only did that, I went on this radio. And on every station we were on at the time, I said to friends, pray for me. And I didn't go to a faith healer. I went to God with it. I went to the great physician. My friend, I feel that the two things when you get sick, you ought to do. You ought to call the doctor, and you ought to call upon God. And did you know that there was a man that I think he's probably one of the most practical men that we have in the Bible? You know, that's what he said to do. He says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And that's one thing, prayer. And then anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, that word anoint there is not the word that is ceremonial. This is not religious act. This is medicinal. Let him anoint him with oil. In other words, James says, when you get sick, ask for prayer and call the doctor. And there's nothing quite as practical as that, my beloved. Now, the difficulty with Asa was he called the doctor. He didn't call upon God. Now, here's a man that has experienced revival, and yet he's not walking with God here. He's not believing God. My friends, there must be faith in God. Faith in God that takes our problems, our difficulties to the Lord, and turns them over to Him and accept whatever answer He gives us. Because He hears and answers prayer, but He hears it and answers it His way. And you can be sure of one thing, if you turn it over to Him, you're going to get His will. And if you get His will, you get the best answer that you can get. In fact, lots better than sometimes we pray the prayer. Now, will you notice? And Asa slept with his fathers, and he died in the 
one and fortieth year of his reign. And they buried him in his own sepulchres, which he had made for himself in the city of David, and laid him in the bed, which was filled with sweet odors, divers kinds of spices, prepared by the apothecary's art, and they made a very great burning for it. They burned a lot of candles for him. Now, may I say this is Asa. It was a touch of revival. Now we're coming in the 17th chapter to the second great revival period, and it was much greater than the revival of Asa. It's the son of Asa, now Jehoshaphat. And this man was marvelously used of God and brought a great revival. Now, I want you to notice this because I think that it's very important because these are great revivals, and it's in the book of Chronicles, and this is the book gives us God's viewpoint. This is what God thought was important during the reign of these men of this entire period was the revivals. Now, verse 1, And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his stead and strengthened himself against Israel, that against the enemy in the north. He placed forces in all the fenced cities of Judah, and he set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa his father had taken. Now, he took precautions to protect his kingdom. Now, listen to this. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, because he walked in the first ways of his father David, and he sought not unto Balaam. But you notice it says he walked in the first ways of his father, not the way that Asa became in his old age, but when he was a young king trusting God, God used him. Now, Jehoshaphat, a young king, he trusts in the Lord. He sought to the Lord God of his father, walked in his commandments, and not after the doings of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presents, and he had riches and honor in abundance. Now listen to this. This is a tremendous testimony. And his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he took away the high places, groves out of Judah, also, in the third year of his reign, he sent to his princes and so on. I'm not going into that detail. Now will you notice? And then he sent Levites throughout the kingdom. And what did they do? Verse 9, And they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. And he went about through all the cities of Judah and taught the people. You know what he did? He started a through-the-Bible radio program. That's what Jehoshaphat did. And you want to know what that J in my name stands for. I signed my name, J. Vernon McGee. And a great many people always ask me what the J stands for. And I generally give a very facetious answer. And so I'll give you one. It stands for Jehoshaphat, because he's the first one that started a through-the-Bible program. He sent the Levites. They didn't have radio. You can sit in a studio like I am now and make a tape. That's not the way he did it. He sent the Levites out, not just 150 of them, but thousands of them throughout the kingdom to teach the Word of God. My friend, that's the way of revival. 
And until today, the church gets back to the Word of God, there'll be no real revival. The moving that's taking place outside of the organized church, it will eventually come to naught unless it's anchored in the Word of God. Now, some of it is anchored in the Word of God. I thank God for that. I could tell you some wonderful things happening today outside of the organized church. I can tell you some wonderful things happening inside the organized church. And in both instances, it's all rooted and grounded in the Word of God. That is what brings revival. Now, notice the reaction, that which took place. And I'm reading now verse 10 of Second Chronicles 17. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah, so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat. And also some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and tribute silver. And the Arabians brought him flocks, 7,000 and 700 rams and 7,000 and 700 he-goats. And Jehoshaphat waxed great exceedingly, and he built in Judah castles and cities of store, that is, storehouses, to take care of all of these gifts that were brought to him, and all of the grain. Now, you see, this man marvelously used to God, and when revival came, it had effect upon all these nations round about. This revival spread. And even the Philistines, which were the inveterate enemies of David, they become friendly and send gifts to him. This revival penetrated among the Arabians, the Arab people of that day. My friend, the greatest thing that is needed today is a spiritual revival. They cure for war. You notice that they made no war against him. When a nation is constantly at war, it's because that nation is away from God. That's the mark of it. And if a nation wants to have peace, then the thing to do is to come to God. That's God's method, by the way. And it always has been his method. Now, this man, Jehoshaphat, is marvelously and wonderfully blessed of God. He built in Judah these storehouses to receive all of the booty that he was getting. Now we're told, verse 13, And he had much business in the cities of Judah, and the men of war, mighty men of valor, were in Jerusalem. And then the writer here gives us the number. Now we are told, as we move down into this chapter, verse 19, the last verse, these waited on the king beside those whom the king put in the fenced cities throughout all Judah. He had ample protection in case an enemy came against him, but God had given him peace. This is the condition. Jehoshaphat is a great man. Now he does something that actually seems unbelievable, and yet when you begin to study it, you find out that there was a reason for it that there was a motivation for him doing what he did. So in chapter 18, I read, Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and he joined affinity with Ahab. That is, 
He teamed up with Ahab, had fellowship with Ahab. And I can't think of two men as unlike as these two men. And after certain years, he went down to Ahab to Samaria, and Ahab killed sheep and oxen for him in abundance and for the people that he had with him and persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth Gilead. Now, this seems unbelievable. It's one of the strangest partnerships that's on record, either in the pages of Scripture or anywhere else. It's almost like saying that you can have day and night at the same time, and that you can have light and darkness at the same time. How these two ever came together is an enigma and a mystery, and they had nothing in common, certainly not spiritually. And this man Jehoshaphat is one of the most godly kings personally. And he had led in a great revival, as we have seen here. He loved the Word of God, and he loved God, and he's what you call a spiritually-minded man. And Ahab's as godless as they come. We've already seen him. He hated God. He gave himself to idolatry and immorality. Now, how could these two be buddy-buddy? How could they enjoy each other's company? What did they have in common? Well, let's do a little investigating now here as we get into this. They had a threefold alliance and partnership, and it was all material, all physical, nothing spiritual about it at all. There's something we find out here in Chronicles you wouldn't find out anywhere else, and I'm going to have to go forward just a little to let you know what it was. There was a matrimonial alliance between these two. You see, the son of Jehoshaphat married the daughter of Ahab, and that daughter was the bloody Athaliah that we've already seen back in Kings. We'll see it again here in Second Chronicles. Now, let me turn over to the 21st chapter here and read for you verse 6. We are told here, And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab. This is Jehoram. For he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, and he wrought that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, who is Jehoram? Why, son of Jehoshaphat? So that a son of Jehoshaphat married a daughter of Ahab. That was wrong, my friend. That is a spot today that's on our contemporary culture and society. I know today I'm going to sound like a square to a lot of folk. I'm a back number, that is for sure. But will you hear me for just a few moments on this? Here in Southern California, we lead the world in divorces. There's some saying that divorces now equal the marriages. When it passes it, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how it could pass it, but it may do that. What is the real problem in this? And I'm not an authority in this field, but here is one area in which, my friend, I think that we need to speak loud and clear on, and that is that a believer and a non-believer, a Christian and a non-Christian, ought not to get married under any circumstances whatsoever. Now, a son of Jehoshaphat, hot out of a revival, now marries that cold-blooded daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. 
couldn't get any two any farther apart than that. And that brought tragedy. It almost exterminated the line of David. And there is more tragedy. There is more heartache and heartbreak, more broken lives, more maladjusted children in Southern California because of this than anything I know anything about. Where one, a professing Christian, there is one who's a professing non-Christian. Won't work, my friend. Now, if somebody gets converted after they've married, then, may I say, Paul had a great deal to say to that individual. But God hasn't much to say to the one who deliberately walks into a trap like that, and that's exactly what it is. Now, there was, therefore, a matrimonial alliance between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. There was not only that, there happened to be a market alliance. They joined their navies. They sent their ships to Tarshish. That was something that they did. Turn over with me back to 1 Kings, the 22nd chapter, verses 48 and 49. Listen to this. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they went not, for the ships were broken at Ezion-Geber, his shipwreck. Then said Ahaziah the son of Ahab unto Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with thy servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. He learned his lesson when the son of Ahab came along. He said, Nothing doing. You see, a market alliance, they made, they sent ships to get grain and gold. And what happened? There was a shipwreck, and the cargo was lost. God could not bless it. Then the third alliance was a military alliance. Actually, what the armies of Ahab could not do, his oxen did, by the way. And what happened? Reading now Second Chronicles 18.2, And after certain years he went down to Ahab to Samaria, and Ahab killed sheep and oxen for him in abundance. He made a big party for him, big dinner for him. And we find now Jehoshaphat sitting in the seat of the scornful. He reminds me of Chamberlain back at Munich with Hitler and Mussolini, our former President Roosevelt at Yalta, our marshal in London. And probably we've got them today that are meeting where they ought not to be meeting, by the way. God can't bless this sort of an arrangement. Now, we have here Jehoshaphat. He had an anxiety for the mind of God. Why? Well, something came up. Now, we went over this before. I'll hit some high points. Verse 3, Ahab, king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Wilt thou go with me to Ramoth Gilead? He answered him, I am as thou art. My people is thy people. We will be with thee in the war. Now, Jehoshaphat, because he's in the family now, and because of the alliances he's made, why, he says, we're one, we're together. If you're going to make war... And God had given Jehoshaphat peace. But now he enters this war. But wait a minute. When Ahab made the suggestion, Jehoshaphat is disturbed. And notice, verse 4, Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Let's find out what God has to say. 
Now look what Ahab did. Verse 5, Therefore the king of Israel gathered together of prophets, 400 men said unto them, Shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for God will deliver it in thy hand. Now who are these men that he gathered together? Prophets of Baal. And so Jehoshaphat suspected something is wrong. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord? Besides, that we might inquire of him. The king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There's yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. The same as Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. You see, here is something that I feel that ought to be in the front of every pulpit where a man is preaching the word of God. On the pulpit that I served for so many years, there was this word, Sir, we would see Jesus. But out in front, I always felt there ought to be another verse of Scripture out there, Galatians 4.16. Am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. Now, Micaiah is one of the great men of the Bible, as we saw before. He told Ahab the truth. He was a man of God who gave the word of God. So they send for Micaiah here. And Jehoshaphat says, oh, you really don't mean that you don't like him if he gives you the word of God. And Ahab says, I don't like him, but we'll send for him. And they did. Verse 12. And the messenger that went to call Micaiah spake to him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets declare good to the king with one assent. Let thy word, therefore, I pray thee, be like one of theirs, Speak thou good. In other words, get in step. You better read the book, How to Make Friends Influence People. And if you want to stand in with the king, the thing to do is to say the thing that he wants to hear. Be sure and say the right thing. And Omicaiah really had a sense of humor. He wasn't frivolous, but he had a sense of humor. And as many of you know, I say it reverently, but I always say it, God has a sense of humor. He made a lot of us, didn't he? He had to have a sense of humor to make the human family. Now, will you notice, friends, here, Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, even what my God saith, that will I speak. I'm going to say what God has for me to say. You can be sure of that. And when he was come to the king, the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And he said, Go ye up and prosper, and they shall be delivered under your hand. Here were all these 400 false prophets of Baal running around saying, Go up, go up, go up. And Micaiah, you know he has a real sense of humor. He joins the parade and he says, Go up, go up, go up. And he did it with biting sarcasm. And so Ahab says, Stop kidding me. You can't fool me. You don't agree with them. Verse 15, the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that Thou say nothing but the truth to me in the name of the Lord. He really wanted the Word of God, but he didn't want it. And there are a lot of folk like that today. Now, here is God's message. Now, Micaiah becomes serious. Then he said, I did see all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return, therefore, of a man to his house in peace." You see, what he's saying is that the king, Ahab's going to be slain in the battle. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, 
Did I not tell thee that he would not prophesy good unto me, but evil? You see what he has to say? It wasn't good. I told you so. Then he really lets him have it here. Will you notice this? This is one of the greatest, I think, in the Scripture. And we've seen it in Kings, and we get it again here. Listen to him. Verse 18. Again he said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. And he's serious now, but he's sarcastic. Ooh, what with biting irony. He gives this. He said, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall entice Ahab king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Now, this is ridiculous. Can you imagine God calling a board of directors meeting or a meeting of his cabinet to find out what he should do? The Lord just doesn't ask for advice, my friend. Oh, what biting sarcasm this is. And one spake after this man another, saying after that man. There was all kinds of suggestions. And there came out a spirit. This is a little wee spirit. And stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? The Lord says, Mom, I'm glad you were here to give me some advice. And this little spirit came out and he said, I'll go out. And I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, Thou shalt entice him, and thou shalt also prevail. Go out and do even so. In other words, this was Micaiah's very nice, polite way of saying, All these prophets you got here are a pack of liars. They're not telling you the truth. Verse 22, Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of these thy prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil against you. You're to be judged. Well, Ahab's not about to pay any attention to that. And he says, now you take this prophet Micaiah, and you put him in prison, and you keep him there. Then the king of Israel said, verse 25, take ye Micaiah, carry him back to Ammon the governor of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, Thus saith the king, put this fellow in the prison, feed him with bread of affliction, with water of affliction, until I return in peace. And old Micaiah has the parting shot. Listen to him. If thou certainly return in peace, then hath not the Lord spoken by me. And he said, hearken all ye people. And I love this. Before Micaiah left, he said, look, if you come back, the Lord hasn't spoken by me. But he says, you're not coming back. And he says, now, he won't be here, but the rest of you folks will be here. Remember what I said. My, I tell you how tremendous this is. So the king of Israel, verse 28, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I'll disguise myself and go to the battle. So old Ahab was clever, very subtle. He dressed like an ordinary soldier. There's only one king in the battle, that's Jehoshaphat, and the enemy's after him. It made Jehoshaphat a target, and he almost got killed. And what happened? Well, this man, Ahab, thought he came through the battle unscathed. And finally, when the battle is over, he said, Well, it just looks like I came through all right. But on the other side, there was a soldier that ended up with one arrow left in his quiver. And what did he do? Well, he took it out of his quiver, put it in his bow, and he let go. And what happened? Well, notice verse 33. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture. He wasn't aiming at anything. But you know that arrow? 
had old Ahab's name on it, and it walked around looking for him because it had his name on it. And what did it do? It smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Therefore he said to his chariot men, Turn thine hand, that thou mayest carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. And what happened? Well, he died, friends, just like Micaiah said he would. Now, friends, I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 19. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to king Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land, and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. Now, this is something that I think this generation that's gone lovey-dovey on everything, and we should love everybody, God asks you the question, And it's a good question, shouldst thou help the ungodly? I think we made a big mistake in sending so much help to Russia during and after World War II. And should we love them that hate the Lord? And I don't think that we should love them that hate the Lord. I'm just repeating what God says here. Now, Jehoshaphat was a remarkable man. But this marriage of his son into the family of Ahab, of course, actually brought judgment from God upon him and his nation. And also, a tragedy was averted. God never blesses this sort of a thing. And I do not believe that today he blesses mixed marriages. I think if you look at them, you'll find for the most part they're not happy marriages at all. Now, there is another lesson. In fact, there are several here that I would like to call attention to. Another one of these lessons is that he says, Shouldst thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Now, I do not know how much he thought of Ahab and Jezebel. Naturally, his son marrying into the family, he probably wanted to establish good relations, and now the prophet rebukes him. God never asks you to love the enemy of God like that. Now, it's one thing to love a sinner. It's another thing to love his sin. It's one thing to hate a sinner and another thing to hate his sin. We need to distinguish between the two. Hate the sinner's sin, and if he sticks with it, then he's identified with his sin. There's no other alternative, my beloved. There's some people that very candidly, they're God's enemies. They're the enemies of the Word of God. They're the enemies of Christianity. They're inveterate enemies. Now, a very pious fellow said to me years ago, he said, I pray for Joe Stalin. Well, I didn't. I make no apology for it. That man was brought up, apparently, in a school where he was taught the Bible. He had an opportunity, and what he turned and did, I see no reason. I do not believe that God asks us 
to go around with this type of lovey-dovey sort of thing that we're hearing so much about today. I do not think that this type of thing is honoring to God. I think it leads to hypocrisy because it's so easy to make a statement like that. I found out that these have said to me how much they love me, and I've had several that have been very extravagant in their statements. And they were the ones that I found out were not even my friends. They turned out to be enemies. So I'm not sure that God wants us to get into that hypocritical position of running around and mouthing that we love everybody when there are very few people really that we do love. But we are to love God's people. I do know that. And we're to love the sinner in the sense of trying to get him to Christ. But that does not mean we're to compromise with his sin at all. Now, there is another tremendous lesson that is here that I would not want you to miss. God did not put the son of Hanani, the prophet, in the way when he went up to join himself with Ahab and Jezebel. At that time, he never had the prophet get up and give him a nice little message on separation. You ought to be separated from this man, and you ought not to go up. Now, there are a great many people today that have made themselves God's spiritual policemen to tell everybody else how they ought to be separated today and who they can associate with and who they can associate with. I'd like to say that we saw this back in Romans, you'll recall. God's made it very clear that we are not to judge other people in questionable matters at all to begin with. And after all, these people do not come before us for judgment anyway. And Paul says in Romans 14, 4, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Now that man that you're criticizing because he's not as separated as you, God's going to make him stand because he has a personal faith in Jesus Christ. This man Jehoshaphat was God's man. He made a mistake, but it wasn't up to Jehu to tell him not to go and do it and sit in judgment upon him. It's after he's had this experience, he's learned his lesson, now God has a message for him. And it's God who will give the message. And I would just like to put it like this. I will have to give an account someday for my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my master. You are not. And I'm not your master. The Lord Jesus is your master. And in view of the fact I'm going to have to give an account there, that is the thing that is keeping me busy. So I'm not going to have time to sit in judgment on you. And I trust you'll not sit in judgment on me. Because after all, it's not your business. It's his business. And if I'm wrong, he'll take care of that. He took care of Jehoshaphat, I can assure you that. And he doesn't need help from the outside. I think this is a tremendous passage of Scripture for us today. Now, notice some of the reforms that Jehoshaphat engaged in here. I think he's a wonderful man, by the way. Verse 4, And Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, 
And he went out again through the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim, and brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. And he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Take heed what ye do, for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Now, he said you are to stand in God's place, and there's no iniquity with the Lord, so you don't be involved in it. And God doesn't show any respect of persons, and don't you either. And don't you take a bribe, because you can't bribe God, that is for sure. So here is, by the way, a tremendous set of rules for judges, the principles by which they ought to govern. And that, I think, is the entire difficulty with our legal system today. When a man sits on the judge's bench and a godless man sits there and he does not feel a responsibility to God, he's a dangerous judge. And I don't care who he is, friend. He's a dangerous judge because he's be subject to all of these. To begin with, he's apt to make a wrong judgment. And another thing is that he'll apt to show respect to persons. And he could maybe be led to take a bribe. Now, these are things today that are very important and may explain one of the problems we're having today in this land of ours. Now, will you notice verse 8, Moreover in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat said of the Levites and of the priests, you notice how this man has organized everything in the kingdom and actually around God. Now we come down to chapter 20, verse 1. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab, the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. There came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee, from beyond the sea on this side Syria, and behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. You see now this man, that he has a normal reaction. He's afraid. And he goes to God, though in prayer. And that's not a normal reaction. That is something that only a man of God would do. And he went to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord, even out of all the cities of Judah. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, now listen to him. This is verse 6 of chapter 20. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers... Art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? Now, this man's doing something that 
his father Asa did not do. Asa did not rest upon the experiences of the past. That should have given him faith. This man, knowing what God has promised in the past and what God has done in the past, why, he now rests upon the promises of God. And he goes on to go over this entire situation, and he concludes this prayer at verse 12, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. What a scene, and what a king, casting himself entirely in a helpless situation upon God. What a wonderful thing it is. Now will you notice verse 14? Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. You notice how these prophets and the different ones that are brought across the page of Scripture are identified. It's always given a long genealogy to identify them. But it's very important. I wonder if how many of you listening today know who your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was. I haven't any idea who mine was. Now, verse 15. Listen to him now. He's going to be God's spokesman. Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and vow, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And that is something that I need to remind myself of. Now, maybe I shouldn't put this on radio. Maybe I ought to turn the radio off and the microphone and just talk to Vernon McGee now. But it's so easy for me to forget that this is the Lord's work, and this is his work, not mine, it's his. And I go at it like it's mine, and I forget it, and I begin to carry the burden and face the problems and the difficulty. But every now and then, why, I'm reminded that this is God's work, and I've dedicated this radio to him. It's his. He can do with it anything he wants to. But I forget that every now and then, especially when problems come up, and I forget sometimes to turn it over to him. I wonder maybe if that might fit your situation today. The battle is not yours. It's God's. And since it's his, and I say this reverently, he's going to have to fight. He's going to have to work the problem out. Oh, I think that is the secret of prayer today is to go in faith. And I think this is the kind of faith now that we need is to take these problems, these burdens, as the hymn has it, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. My trouble is I don't leave it there. I spread it out before him and say, look, and then I put that old sack of problems right back on my back and I start out again with it. He says it's his. Oh, my friend, how wonderful it is. Don't be afraid, Jehoshaphat. 
The battle is not yours. You couldn't fight it. It's God's. And I find myself, I'm sure you do in situations, I cannot extricate myself. I cannot see my way out. And God says, it's my battle. (laughs) Turn it over to me. Oh, that we might learn to turn it over to him. Now listen, verse 20. There came the enemy, Jehoshaphat, bowed himself to the ground, turned it over to the Lord. And we find here, verse 20, And they arose early in the morning, went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Listen to this king. What a ruler. Believe in the Lord your God. So shall ye be established. Believe his prophets. So shall ye prosper. And I think God wants to say to us today, he wants to say, believe in me, trust me, rest in me, and believe my word today. Rest in it. Don't listen to what Dr. Ph.D. has to say. He hasn't any word to say. Listen to what God has to say. And don't even listen to Vernon McGee. Listen to what God has to say. And this is what he says. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe its prophet, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. Now, that's a very funny way to organize an army. But Joshua had learned to do that, and Jehoshaphat is another man who learned to trust God like that, especially in battle like this. Well, what does he do? Organize singers. Well, I think you ought to get out your atom bomb at a time like this when you're this hell. He didn't. He just organized the singers to go ahead to praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And you want to know something? I'm not going to read this, but the Lord gave them the victory. They won the battle. Well, let me put it like it should be. God won the battle for them. Verse 26, And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Baraka unto this day. Now, Baraka is a name taken by several churches in this country today. Good name, by the way. It means it's the place to bless the Lord, praise the Lord. And every church ought to be a Baraka church then. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with psalters, harps, trumpets, under the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. And it is God, my friend, who gives rest and peace today. And our nation hasn't learned that. We think if we you know, have this kind of an alignment and this kind of treaty, we won't have to fight. Well, we have fought two world wars in order to bring peace in the world, and all we've got is war. You know why? Because 
God hasn't given us peace. And the reason is, we just haven't asked him, friends. That is it. And we find now, verse 34, now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last. Behold, they're written in the book of Jehu, the son of Anani, who is mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel.